Hello, and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Dr. Melissa Lott, and I'm the Director of Research at Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy, and I'm a regular contributor here at The Energy Gang. So I'm not Ed Crooks, you'll probably realize that already before I even introduce myself. Ed is taking a really well-deserved holiday, and I'm delighted to step in as host for this week, though I will miss being able to talk through... Oh, so many different things that we talk through about renewables permitting and crypto and everything under the sun going on in the world of energy. And I will say that what a week for Ed to be away from the mic. There's so much going on despite the summer holidays here in the Northern Hemisphere. We have the Supreme Court imposing new limits on the EPA when it comes to regulating climate pollution. And we're seeing inflation hitting the price of everything, including renewables. And we're also seeing additional movement and efforts to save some existing nuclear power plant capacity in this country to keep that zero carbon power on the grid, namely in the form of funding to save Diablo Canyon in California. But before we dive into all that, I'd like to introduce the two folks who are joining me for today's discussion. These are Energy Gang regulars Emily Chasen from Generate Capital and Robbie Orvis from Energy Innovation. Welcome, Emily, and welcome, Robbie. Thanks, Melissa. Great to be here today. Yeah, thanks. So, Emily, how have you been? Did you have a good Fourth of July holiday? Was it fun? It's, yeah, it's good. I went back to my hometown fireworks celebration in Pennsylvania, and um, it hadn't happened for a while because of the pandemic. So it was really nice to sort of have that start again and um, show my kids fireworks. So. Nice. I will admit that I may have not been awake when the fireworks finally happened. It had been a long few days, so I didn't quite make it. But that's all right. What about you, Robbie? Did you see the fireworks? Has it been a busy summer? How have you been? Yeah, it's been good. We we were in Vermont, actually, um, for the 4th. And yes, we saw fireworks, but as a sign of, of where I am in life, we actually uh, started running to the car when they started so we could leave before the exodus of people away from the fireworks. So we caught them as we were driving home. Well, I will say for me, it's been a crazy couple of weeks. I actually ended up in Canada twice in the past three weeks for work. And I got to experience Calgary's stampede this last weekend because it happened to be happening when I had these meetings um, down at Spruce Meadows, this beautiful horse facility just south of Calgary. It was an experience. I'll say that as a Texan, I feel like I knew what a rodeo was about. And it's not that it wasn't a rodeo, but Calgary does it well. I will say all the appropriate food, funnel cakes, mini donuts, you know, long corn dogs, all that stuff. They know how to swing a chuck wagon around a rodeo. So that was that was pretty fun. But all right, let's dive into it. First up, I mean, what else can we start with right now than West Virginia versus EPA? So last week, the Supreme Court imposed new limits on the EPA. And while stopping short of prohibiting the EPA's ability to regulate climate pollution at all, it did essentially force the agency to approach the issue with the more brute force tools, I think I'll say. And I also think it's fair to say, though Robbie and Emily might disagree with me here in a minute, that the Supreme Court ruling has ensured that climate regulation, when it does come, is probably going to be more difficult and likely more expensive for everyone around. But before we dive into that, just a couple of things on background. So as a bit of background, many of y'all might remember that in 2007, we had Massachusetts versus EPA that held up that carbon dioxide was covered by the Clean Air Act. And in August of 2015, the Obama administration proposed this thing called the Clean Power Plan, which would have set first ever limits on carbon pollution from U.S. power plants, which at the time were the largest source of greenhouse gas pollution in the country. And the plan aimed to combat climate change with the help of the EPA, so the Environmental Protection Agency here in the U.S., which would act as regulators. You fast forward and we'll just say there was a bunch of back and forth between the Obama administration, the Trump administration, the D.C. Circuit Courts, um, the Biden administration. We had this thing called the Affordable Clean Energy Rule pop up in all the middle of it, which actually aimed to establish guidelines for states to develop plans to address greenhouse gas emissions. But fast forward to today, and I think we were all really holding our breath to see what was going to come out of the Supreme Court. So first, before we dive into exactly what this decision said, Um, Robbie, I know that within all the history before this latest decision, there was a lot of discussion around a couple different topics, um, including this within the fence line and outside the fence line concept and how it relates to all this. I don't know if you want to come in with on that and just make a few comments. Yeah, no, really good points and good history. I think the, you know, the original clean power plan had this idea of, um, outside the fence line reductions, which would have, um, set targets that would have allowed for technology or in particular fuel switching to different types of 
power plants, so maybe coal to gas or coal to renewables, rather than just on-the-site technologies, more like kind of the conventional pollutant controls that power plants have historically added. And ironically, a lot of utilities actually supported that approach because it provided them a lot more flexibility and, to your point, would have allowed for kind of the least cost uh, reduction in emissions to hit the targets. So that's this concept of kind of in or outside of the fence line. And in the most recent decision, um, it seems like, you know, the Supreme Court has basically said, no, you can't do these kind of outside of the fence line market driven approaches. You have to do kind of technical requirements inside the fence line at the power plant itself. And so, yeah, that will raise the cost of emissions reductions by reducing the amount of flexibility that utilities have to pursue different technology options and also maybe limit kind of how ambitious the EPA can be in setting those targets. You know, that really is the the crux, I think, of the kind of inside and outside the fence line issues. And so I think this is a really important point around the West Virginia versus EPA decision. I mean, it didn't actually say that we can't regulate carbon pollution, right? It doesn't say that we can't use Section 111 of the Clean Air Act and we can't apply it in this case. My read on it is that basically it said that it can only be used to regulate plant-by-plant emissions and not to prescribe kind of a new generation resource mix, much less go further than that. Is that how you're reading it, Robbie? Yeah, that's that's pretty much how I'm reading it. And it's just kind of interesting with the backstory that the, you know, with the advanced clean energy rule kind of no longer on the table, it's almost like the court is trying to preempt EPA's next move to kind of say, you know, we know what you're working on. This is what you can and can't do. Or really, this is what you can't do. Um, And then the EPA will have to work around that consideration. So given this decision and the limits that the Supreme Court has placed on the use of the Clean Air Act to regulate the climate, there's a lot of questions out there. Like, what can the EPA still do to address climate change? And what's the next move that the Biden administration is going to make? And really, you know, coming down to, okay, we knew that the Clean Air Act was not a perfect vehicle to regulate climate, but there are reasons that we were pushing to have that be a tool because it wasn't our toolbox to actually help us accelerate the energy transition. So, you know, we're left with a lot of, I think, mixed feelings. And I'm going to ask you, Emily, what are your thoughts on this decision? On one hand, the ruling doesn't stop regulation of carbon altogether, but it throws up some roadblocks. So how are you feeling about it all? Yeah, I think your comment on the tool in our toolkit is really the issue that people are disappointed about here, um, where the EPA could have just done something very um, coordinated, very clear, long-term certain policies on this that you know helps investors and communities and companies and utilities just know what they're supposed to be doing. Um, so it does, you're right, it doesn't impact the ability of the EPA to regulate in this case. You know, you can go to individual power plants and do it that way, and they, they may choose to do that. There's lots of things in the federal government, like in the SEC, where it goes to individual companies, and that's how the SEC regulates. So that is a thing that happens across government. I do think also it's important because it's the electricity sector, which is an area that's very deep in infrastructure, and it's the second largest source of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, about 25% of emissions totally. And it's something that I think people have a harder time engaging with on on their own. It's sort of invisible to you. You just sort of turn on your light switch and you don't think that hard about where the electricity has come from. And it's not like recycling a plastic bottle or something where you feel like you can have an impact on that. So we have to think of how we want people to engage on this topic and why that coordination element is important and what else we could do around that. I know one of the reasons that I think the coordination is important is that there are other countries and continents in the world like Europe and China where they have much more coordination between power plants and the whole energy policy. And having that lack of clarity and policy is just something that sort of makes it harder for us to compete on a global scale. The longer we wait to do things, the more we risk having a disorderly transition. Stranded assets are still a thing. It's possible that this didn't change that much over time and there will be other ways to act here. It just might be a little bit more disorderly. Yeah, I think it's a bunch of great points. And, you know, one of those things with the power sector that we're always reminded of is even if it's not the number one source of emissions in the U.S., it's the backbone of actually getting emissions done across the economy. So if we don't do power right, we're stuck in a tough, a tough place. But Robbie, I'm curious your thoughts when you saw the news come out. I mean, what was your first and second and third reaction to it all? What are you thinking right now? Well, honestly, I breathed a little bit of a sigh of relief. Um, you know, on on that last show we were on together, we were discussing all of the really terrible things that were on the table. Um, you know, 
removing carbon dioxide regulation altogether, kneecapping the ability of agencies to interpret language, legislative language, where it's a bit broad. Most of that didn't happen. So um, obviously the decision is still disappointing because it limits EPA's toolkit and will make reductions more expensive. But broadly, I was relieved that it wasn't more damaging. I do think there's an interesting question about how this major questions doctrine that Chief Justice Roberts talked about in his opinion gets used in the future. It it does seem like the court is definitely going to take a a microscope to agency rulemakings more than it has even in the past. Uh, And that is a little bit of a red flag in terms of how EPA can move ambitiously on climate policy. Absolutely. I know that this uh, past week on the Columbia Energy Exchange was hosted by my colleague and our director of our center here, Jason Bordoff um, and Bill Lovelace. They interviewed Michael Gerard with the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law here at Columbia and Jeff Holmstead with Bracewell, um, who's part of former administrations. And they were talking about the implications of all this and what it meant in terms of what the Supreme Court was signaling in terms of what leeway they were going to give agencies. Because as you say, it seems like when it's unclear, a lot of deference was given to agencies to kind of say, okay, you know, within the bounds that are clear, here's how we're going to operate. We're going to make these decisions. seems like there might be a tightening down. Do you agree with that or still unclear to you? It sure seems that way. It seems given that it was referenced in the opinion and is something that a lot of Smarter legal scholars have been talking about uh, with regard to this case. Um, It does seem like that is in the future for the EPA, which is a little concerning that the court is going to be the decider of kind of what constitutes a large enough regulation to to come under their review and and that they're going to be the ones interpreting kind of the significance of of climate environmental regulation. So that that does give me some concern. So I've seen some comments about this being an unofficial non-regulation that actually protects fossil fuel companies, in particular coal companies. Do you think that's fair? And how does it actually impact fossil fuel companies? You know, it's obviously a blow to regulation of greenhouse gases from the power sector. I think one interesting thing is the power sector has already achieved the targets that the original clean power plan set out um, through a mix of technology costs, declines, and other state regulation. But yeah, I think in the long run, it's helpful. I don't think it's especially meaningful for the coal sector. Uh, I just don't think coal is very competitive anymore, and I don't think the trends are helpful. And so in the long run, I think you know it might be longer for coal emissions to decline, but I don't think it's significantly changing kind of the direction we're going in. So Emily, I'm curious, when you look at this ruling and you're coming from a business and investment perspective, what are the important kind of next steps that businesses are looking for or where are their concerns and what are they looking at in terms of what the EPA is going to do next, what the federal government and the Biden administration are going to do next? What are you seeing? What are folks talking about? Yeah, I think the Biden administration has been pretty clear about its direction of travel and policy. We talked the other week I was on about the um, Defense Production Act and, you know, where it wants to use all the different levers it can to make an impact on climate change. So I think business sees that and sees that there is a clear direction of travel, that there are outer limits sort of of what you can do. Um, I guess this does give some freedom to people who maybe felt like they didn't have as much freedom and how to select what their power plant was going to be able to do. Um, So it becomes more of a business decision. I think that's a place where investors are really going to matter. And probably we're going to see investors over the next year get more engaged on this topic um, if they're owners of utilities um, on the public company side. But yeah, I think that it doesn't really change the fundamentals of us needing to reach the Paris Agreement where it doesn't necessarily help us reach the Paris Agreement goals. But um, you know, stranded assets are still going to be an issue. And, you know, coal plants are still not that economical and economics really are on the side of renewables being cheaper at this time. So hopefully that um, heavy hand of the market will continue. No, Robbie, if you have any thoughts on this. No, I agree. And I was just thinking about, you know, taking a step back and looking at what's going on in the power sector now. You know, you'd think we'd be seeing a whole lot more coal generation given where gas prices are natural gas prices. But um, that's actually not the case due to supply chain constraints and other kind of more long-term trends in the sector. So I think 
you know, to Emily's points, it's not fundamentally changing the trajectory we're on. Obviously, it's not helpful for our 2030 target, but I think the market is doing a lot um, as a state policy, and those trends are are likely to continue. Yeah, you know, in the past few weeks in Texas, we've seen a lot of strain on our power system as temperatures have been uncomfortable. I'll go with that. I don't know who thinks 106, 7, 10 degrees Fahrenheit is comfortable, um, if I'm honest. But within that, we've seen renewables largely performing as expected. Um, you know, certainly on really hot summer days, we don't expect the wind to be blowing full force. But you know, there is a couple of tweets coming out from Michael Weber and Joshua Rhodes with the University of Texas saying, hey, you know, actually renewables have really had our backs um, and have kept the grid going. And it's interesting to see where renewables are today versus where they were, you know, 10 years ago when there was that freeze that happened, the blackouts, what was it, 2011 and then another one in 2014 before, of course, the one that, you know, we talk about so often that happened, you know, during the COVID pandemic. But with that, I want to pivot into our next topic, actually, which relates to what we're seeing in terms of supply chains. So you just teed that up, Robbie and Emily, around what we're seeing in supply chains and really what we're seeing in terms of inflation's hit on the price of renewables. So we're now in what is, I think, week 19 of the Ukraine war. I mean, it's amazing just to think about how much time has already passed and also how little time it is, relatively speaking. But we're seeing these shockwaves in energy prices that are still... I think it's fair to say reverberating around the world. And we've got inflation running pretty rampant. And we're feeling the effects across the board, including in the increase in the cost of renewables. So for example, when I was looking at the numbers, I was seeing that the cost for new build onshore wind has risen about 7% year on year. Solar is roughly double that from the numbers I was going through. And this seemingly seems to be coming from the rise in cost of materials, freight, fuel, labor, just, I mean, everything under the sun, no pun intended there. And inflation is this really difficult impact to measure. I was talking to a bunch of my economist colleagues who study this, and it's like, all right, so we're talking about long-term outlook for these projects, but we've got these buildings costs rising and supply chain shortages actually undercutting demand. So there's all these different feedback loops happening in these markets. And I know that the U.S. government's looking for solutions. And really, you know, we've got a couple of different things going on. So more immediately, we've seen Biden come forward and suspend the federal gas tax. Perhaps that's flawed. I know Ed and I were discussing this in the uh, free electrons just a couple of weeks ago on this show. Um, I should also mention that the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates and these higher interest rates, they raise the cost of financing for everything. Um, I was talking to my colleague, Harrison Fell, who co-leads our power sector and renewables research initiative. And he was saying, you know, you can focus on our renewables, which we'll do here in a minute, but you also got to realize that inflation and higher interest rates in particular, they're hitting energy efficiency, electrification, distributed energy projects that households and businesses may have been considering, and now they're not because that cost of financing is just not where they need it to be uh, to square the numbers and to get things going. But, you know, this is just a lot of stuff happening all at once. But I'll focus in on two issues. We've got rapid inflation, and as a result, an increasing cost of renewables. So here's my question, and I think, Emily, I'll send it to you first. What can we do about all of this? Like, what tools do we have in our toolbox? Where do we go from here? Yeah, I think it's actually really interesting to talk about inflation in the context of renewables, because what we have been talking about for the past decade or so is an incredible amount of deflation in the cost of renewables, right? The cost of battery power, of LED lights for energy efficiency projects, of um, solar panels has gone down by like 70, 80, 90% over the past decade. So there is some information that these supply chain disruptions have increased the cost of solar power, battery storage, on-store costs just by about 4 to 14% from a year ago. So it's not um, a huge increase given the very long-term nature of the assets and the very long-term um, decline in cost of production of these assets. So I'm not going to say it's not an impact, of course, like higher financing rates, higher um, costs are the reason that some projects on the margin might not get done. Um, you have to be really careful about what you're doing. But I do think people are finding ways around this. You know, when you're building infrastructure or a big renewables project, you're really thinking that this is going to operate for 20 and 30 years. These are long-term contracts. So the price initially is not the whole thing. You're looking at many years of operations. So I think what's this does, though, is it does make people think a little more carefully about like what materials they're using, how they're purchasing them. Um, inflation sort of makes you almost by its nature be a little bit more resource efficient um, and say, do I really need that? Um, so that could be good or bad, depending on who's making the decisions. But um, I think 
inflationary times are a time when you can think a lot about your consumption and whether you can use all these sort of circular economy methods of energy recovery, upcycling, energy efficiency, efficient design, wasting less, and just seeing what the true value of what you're investing is, or thinking about repair costs, reuse models. I think that's um, what this will ultimately push a little bit. It seems like the public is a little mixed on whether this inflation is super, super long-term and whether it's going to come back down. Um, so I think people will be watching these supply chain issues and what they resolve and how that affects inflation. Robbie, what about you? I mean, we're looking at rapid inflation, increasing costs of renewables. Like, what tools do we have? Like, do we have anything on the policy side to make this better? Yeah, it's a good question. My take is it's pretty tough. Um, for basically anything related to inflation, I, I get as much information as I can from Mark Zandi, who's the chief economist at Moody's. Yep. yep. And so kind of just looking at things he's been posting and talking about, you know, the latest inflation statistics year over year is like eight and a half percent. So that's that's a lot. Um, and he's got three and a half of that eight and a half is directly from the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the impact on commodity prices like energy and food in particular. And another 2% is from pandemic, from supply chain issues, right? So that that right there is five and a half out of eight and a half. And normal inflation is somewhere in two and a half percent range. So most of the inflation we're seeing, according to Mark, um, is a combination of the Russian invasion Ukraine and the COVID-19 pandemic. And so, um, you know, the as you mentioned, you know, the Fed is raising interest rates um, as one option. President Biden has proposed uh, lifting the gas tax um, and asked state governors to do the same. That is another path. I don't think it will have a huge impact, but it's every little bit counts, I guess. Finally, there's this discussion of a, of a price cap on Russian oil to allow it kind of back onto the market, but to limit the amount of revenue going to the Russian government as a way to kind of relieve this energy supply crisis. So that those are kind of the things I've seen being discussed and proposed. I'm not sure how much they'll do in the long run. I mean, so much of this is still COVID related. And how can we know how long the, the Russian invasion will go on and, and whether or not sanctions will be lifted? So it's tough. I think that the tools are limited. Um, I think Emily's points are really important, though, right? Like investors taking this long view. Um, and so kind of the near term uh, market disruptions may not be as big an issue in the long run. Um, and then, of course, you know, given where natural gas prices are today, that doesn't seem to be terribly economic to build a whole bunch of new gas plants, um, although those prices should come down after not too long. So, yeah, I think that the tools on the table are limited, but I'm hopeful that for the reasons Emily mentioned the impact may be not as large on kind of long-term renewables deployment as as we might fear. I think it's really great points. It's interesting to me to hear both of y'all discussing it and talking about how important it is to think about how long this lasts. I feel like this is a theme of this year, actually. You know, how long will different crises last? Maybe it's a theme of the last three years. I don't know, because it's like, how long will COVID last? How long will, you know, the impacts on our economies last around these things? Because that length of time we'll have, I think it's fair to say, and Emily, please tell me if you think I'm wrong on this, like some pretty big impacts in terms of not just what marginal projects, the ones that were right on the edge and they slip off, but actually potentially if this lasts a long time, it could have substantial impacts on bigger projects. So the question is, is this short-term, long-term, and then not just how does it affect renewables, but how does it affect everything? Because the reality is we need a lot of electricity. We're gonna need a lot more of it in the future. And so we've got to build something so if inflation is hitting everything, I mean, the fact that it hits renewables is not great. It's a good source of low carbon power, but it's certainly not that anything else is truly immune. What do you think, Emily? Am I right on or am I totally off? Yeah, well, I think what you're saying is interesting about um, just electricity in general and thinking about the demand side of the equation. That's the whole point behind electrify everything is to increase the amount of things we use that depend on electricity rather than fossil fuels and to also change over the the power plants and the power system to be more renewables aligned. So I think people are thinking a lot about um, grid compatibility and how different types of assets can work with the grid or support the grid um, as you try to add this capacity. So hopefully that is something that will actually impact the price of electricity over time. Inflation in general, I think, 
people think of it as a sort of a regressive form of taxation. They think it's like really hard um, and for a lot of people to manage inflation. Um, there's a lot of pain that it causes. So hopefully there is a way to fix at least the supply chain impacts of this. But um, we'll be watching to see whether this is really a long term increase in inflation or not. Yeah, one thing I'll pick up on that you were just saying, just in terms of electricity and demand, you think about, you know, households that were thinking about putting solar panels in. I know I was talking to some family friends of ours the other day and they're like, yeah, we were going to put those panels in and then we went to actually go buy them the other day and the prices are way up and we didn't budget that much for them. And so we want to. We've actually got all the stanchions. We got all of our electricity, like the the wires in our house upgraded so we can actually put them in because they're going to put them on these old stanchions in their very large yard in Texas as opposed to on their rooftops. They don't have to punch through the metal roof. But you know, the reality is they were budgeting for a while. Um, they had their idea of what inflation would look like. And guess what? For solar panels in particular, it didn't. And so they're definitely one of those on the distributed energy side, you know, offsetting their demand and the pull they're having from the grid in Texas. They're not going to be able to do it for a while longer because they got to save up a few more dollars because they just weren't expecting it. And as the price of other things go up at the same time, I mean, it just will make that savings horizon a lot longer, perhaps, before they can actually do it. So they've got some great wires and great places to put the panels, but uh, no panels to connect to them right now. And I don't think this is isolated. It seems like it's happening to a lot of households, which I do wonder how that will affect the balance of like distributed and centralized energy resources we see coming on the system. Now, to your point earlier, it's different if we're thinking really long-term versus short-term, you know, and, and how long does this last and how many projects actually get, you know, pushed off. And to things we talked about on the show before, we need so much more renewables. It's like, is this a blip really? And it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. We also need other things to get to net zero power, but we need a heck of a lot more variable renewables. I just, I'm still, I think I'm part of the jury that's out and maybe we all are, but let's get into that on just how deep these impacts are going to be felt and how much different actions that the federal government or that private organizations, you know, can do to actually mitigate those impacts. So, Emily, what are your thoughts on what I just said? Uh, this is an area where incentives are probably going to become more important. Like as we battle inflation, if we really want to get stuff built today, um, if we want your friends to be able to connect their solar panels, I think um, some of that does come down to incentives, to availability of financing, to people being more creative about how they manage the cost of the initial stuff. Because renewables are quite cheap to operate over time. If you're looking at higher energy prices over time, um, maybe you actually have the economics of change in general. And you know, if you're paying so much for electricity to heat your home, solar panels could be a huge benefit. So I do think this is just an area where you have to look broad at the whole solutions that we have and all the options and whether we have to encourage more local production of supply chain to get companies to really produce the things that we need to keep building the energy transition here throughout America. So well, and I'll say when you talk about incentives, Robbie, I think about tools that we do have in our toolbox, or at least we could potentially have in our toolbox. What are your thoughts about what we could see in the coming year out of DC or even out of states um, to address some of what Emily's talking about? My favorite topic, reconciliation. I know. Um, <laughs> can't escape it. Uh, well, there's been some public reporting that negotiations continue. I think we're all kind of eagerly awaiting to see what happens if anything happens. But, you know, based on the text in the fall, there was a lot of money on the table for for clean energy. Um, and so hopefully if there's a bill announced, it retains that or most of that. So, you know, I think it's very timely to be having this conversation, um, given kind of the, the recent reporting about negotiations on reconciliation. The state level, I think, yeah, it's more, it seems like state policy is more like standards driven, kind of clean electricity standards um, or carve outs within an RPS. So definitely we'll be looking to see how states continue to move forward with those. Um, there's quite a few states now that have pretty ambitious clean electricity standards that should lead to a fair amount of clean energy deployment. I guess the other thing is I'm also really interested to see how FERC moves ahead with addressing kind of all this bottlenecks in the different markets for building new capacity, these transmission interconnection queues where there's hundreds of gigawatts of renewables that are economic. Maybe there's maybe there's fewer projects today um, given uh, inflation concerns than there were a year ago. But my goodness, there's so many renewable projects that are just waiting to connect to the grid. And so 
Um, that seems like a really interesting area where, where FERC could make some progress in the coming year. That's a really great point. And I'll say, Robbie, just for our listeners, could you talk a little bit more about just how backed up this is and how big of an impact this is and kind of different things that folks are trying to do in D.C. to streamline these processes? So the uh, for each of the wholesale markets in particular, um, so the, the areas of the country where there's kind of an independent market operator that tells different power plants kind of when to when to dispatch based on how expensive electricity is and what demand is, power plants can kind of go in and be built by developers, but they have to be approved to kind of connect to the transmission system first. And the, and the market operators have to kind of give it their blessing. And so those are called the interconnection queues, kind of the, the wait to get interconnected. And there are hundreds of gigawatts of renewable projects that are in those queues. So at varying stages of development, some have basically, they're ready to go. They're just waiting on final approval. Um, and and they've just been waiting so long. Um, and the, the review process to connect them is really slow. Uh, and so some of the markets are kind of independently reforming their policies. PJM has a, has a proposal out right now to kind of significantly overhaul its interconnection process. But FERC specifically is looking at this issue and I think maybe even has an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking on this topic in particular and kind of how to reform the interconnection process to speed up the rate at which these projects, which would lower the cost of electricity, help improve reliability, lower emissions, how they can expedite that process to kind of supercharge the grid. So Emily, related to this, I'm thinking about, I'm just curious if the conversation has changed at all in the business and investment community. Because I know the thing I hear time and time and time again is like, if I had a time frame for knowing when I get out of this queue, I could plan so much more and be so much more effective and cost efficient in a lot of cases. But I don't have clarity on that. It could be years, uh, but the, how many of these types of things to actually get these cues? Do you think the conversation has shifted at all when it comes to businesses and investors in these big projects? Or is what Robbie's talking about still top of mind? Like, when can I get out of a queue to actually be able to connect my project? Yeah, I think the lack of clear policy or to have these like permitting and interconnection type issues is something that... Um, People know sort of a cost of doing business in this space, yeah. and they think that you know it just makes you, and it just makes you focus more on the economics of the projects. You know, so you just have to make sure that you have some wiggle room to handle that type of delay. And there's you know there's always delays in construction, or a rainy day, or a snowy day, or something like that. So I think people know that it's it's actually really hard to build these projects. It's hard work. It's not like you can just snap your fingers and get it done. It takes years of effort. So I think. I think people are just really eager to connect to the grid and get these projects going um, as fast as they can and as fast as they can be built. So that brings me to our third topic today. We've been talking a lot about renewables, getting them on the grid, how we regulate power plant emissions and what this latest decision out of the Supreme Court means. But I want to pivot into the other side of getting to net zero grid. So folks on who have listened to the show and have heard me speak before have heard time and time again, we go through the three buckets, the technologies that we need if we're going to get to 100% zero carbon power and have that power be reliable and affordable. And the three buckets are those variable renewables that we just spoke about a lot. So talking about wind and solar, really, really cheap. And when they're able to get interconnected to the grid, to your point, Emily and Robbie, um, and get those electrons flowing, we want them because they are extremely cheap power but we need to back them up with other things. So that's energy storage, not just batteries, but also longer term things that move electricity between you know periods of multiple weeks or even seasons. And the third bucket is firm dispatchable power. So when we talk about firm dispatchable power, you know, I know that a few weeks ago we had that conversation, Ed and I with Elliot Mainzer at the California ISO, the integrated system operator, just about what California is doing moving to net zero across its economy, what's going to do for its power plants and what's going to do for its power grid to actually make sure that it can keep the lights on and keep power affordable because California certainly struggles like the rest of the country does with a bunch of people who struggle with energy insecurity, the ability to pay their bills um, and keep their houses at a healthy and safe temperature. Within that, we touched really briefly in that conversation on Diablo Canyon and, you know, the California's only operational nuclear power plant at this point, uh, and what's going to happen with Diablo Canyon. So just as a bit of background before we dive into this topic, over the last few decades, I know that Diablo Canyon has faced some fierce opposition. Uh, there's protests, calls for closure, and it's currently slated to be closed by 2025. 
or is it? Because we've got California's governor, Gavin Newsom, actually asking the federal government to ensure that the plant qualifies for funds to help it remain in service. And there's a lot of discussions about why this is happening and why this is happening now. I think it's fair to say that we have not just in California, but in other parts of the United States and maybe other parts of the world seen some shifting perspectives on the role of nuclear and is it necessary in the energy transition. So I'm curious, what do we think about this? Like, is this a case of nuclear actually being the lesser of two evils, the greater threat being climate change and a recognition that we do need this firm dispatchable power to complement variable renewables and energy storage if we want to keep power reliable and cheap? What do you think about it? Robbie, I'm going to go to you first and then Emily... Heads up, we're coming to you next. So, Robbie, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think broadly speaking, we should be trying to keep as much clean energy online as we can. Um, you know, we just got done talking about the challenge um, of building at scale clean energy to meet our climate targets. Um, and so we should be doing as much as we can to keep as much of that clean energy online as possible. Now, Diablo Canyon has, as you mentioned, uh, an interesting history, not to mention some of the issues in construction um, that are part of the reason um, that it was slated to close. But it is a potentially large source of clean electricity in California. Um, And as California has kind of looked ahead with its scoping plan and done more kind of reliability modeling, I think to your point, there's this realization like, wow, this this is coming on us fast. And uh, we're going to need as much clean energy um, and firm clean energy as we can get. So should we be keeping this open? And uh, the reason we're here is because the infrastructure bill passed last year had this new program, the Civilian Nuclear Credit, um, which is kind of designed specifically to provide financial support to these nuclear power plants that are slated to close or planning to close because they're unprofitable. And so, you know, that's kind of opened this door and has come at a time when the state is really looking at its reliability concerns and its clean energy ambitions and, and kind of, you know, turn, created a turn uh, in kind of the administration, the uh, Governor Newsom's administration's kind of outlook on, on what should happen with the plant. So uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, obviously, it's a, a highly political issue, especially in California. But broadly speaking, you know, the, the more clean energy we have, the cleaner our power grid is. And I think talking about global implications, I think we're seeing in Europe some of the emissions implications of of maybe prematurely closing some of those nuclear plants. So to me, it makes a lot of sense. So, Emily, what do you think on this? Are we seeing a change in attitudes, a shift in the tide? You know, there are some studies by the nuclear industry, of course, that came out in 2021 that said that, you know, there have been changing attitudes about nuclear power in the U.S. that the people have grown their support for nuclear energy by about 10 percentage points from 2018. So it does seem like people are understanding its role in clean energy as we're trying to add so much clean energy. And nuclear still today is probably only about 20 percent of the grid versus renewables, which are also, I guess, about 12 percent of the grid or 20 percent of electricity generation. So I think nuclear is a tough topic because there's a lot of reasons that people don't want it. There's a lot of reasons that new projects would be hard, but extending the life of an old project when waste is the biggest issue in nuclear, it doesn't seem like it hurts very much. It probably is a net positive in this space to keep that going. But I think maybe it just gives us a little bit more runway. It's interesting you mentioned waste. Emily, I'll say like I've been in a series of conversations that are all chat mouse rules, so I can't say you know who was saying exactly what. But there seems to be a a reopening of the waste conversation in terms of we've been focused in on this big central repository, Yucca Mountain. Okay, how do we actually find productive paths forward given that perhaps that one's not going to happen? Like, how do we actually restart conversations? Because at some point we do have to have a long-term solution for this, especially if nuclear is going to be part of the mix. I actually heard the the word reprocessing the other day, which I thought was like interesting, you know, just but in a not just giving the history of why we don't do it, but actually talking about, you know, are are there openings for reopening that conversation? And I don't know, but I will say that um, there's this quote from the founder and CEO of Vibrant Clean Energy, Chris Clack, who I'm sure many listeners on the show know, and I know we know here um, in this group. And he was arguing and just stating that nuclear should be considered an important component of these future clean energy pathways. And so when I think about nuclear, 
And I'm curious how y'all think about it. I think about it in terms of those buckets I talked about earlier. Just, you know, what does it mean or what could it mean in terms of supporting a 100% zero carbon grid, which is what we care about at the end of the day if we're talking about mitigating climate change and protecting human health. So when you are thinking through it, and Emily, I'll start with you on this one. Is it as simple as thinking about nuclear backing up solar on the system or, you know, actually backing up all the very renewables? Or do you think about nuclear as having a potentially different role in the transition? I think it's pretty obvious that nuclear is very impactful today as a source of power on the grid. Um, It's hard to see how a lot of new nuclear gets built today just because of the expense associated with it and because there is so much um, cheaper option and because there are so many cheaper options in renewables and wind and solar um, and people aren't as into those big projects. There's a lot of development on the small modular reactor side and companies that, you know, maybe haven't been approved yet, but say that they can create these small modular reactors and develop more distributed models for nuclear energy to be on the system. Again, there's the concerns about safety and waste. And I think this waste issue is really the issue we need to confront across all types of energy. If you think about fossil fuels, I mean, that's just waste that we're creating on every single thing that we burn, right? You're just releasing waste into the atmosphere. There's also a lot of comments all the time about you know, what do you do with recycled wind turbines or solar panels that are not as efficient anymore? And now there's newer, more efficient types of solar panels or batteries, you know, how do you recycle batteries from electric vehicles or from grid connected storage? I think these are just critical questions we have to answer and moving toward a much more regenerative and circular way of thinking about the energy system in general and thinking about all the different pieces and how they work together. And when you mention costs, I'll say in every conversation I'm in around nuclear, there's comments about Vogel and how do we avoid runaway costs? Because it's the idea of, okay, yeah, if we can hit that cost target, then that could be new nuclear could come into the system, could replace old nuclear, could maybe repower a coal-fired power plant, you know, to get that different type of waste out of the system, that different type of pollution. Um, But we need some kind of clarity on how much this is going to cost and some kind of reassurance that we're actually going to be able to hit those cost targets. So, you know, I think it's a a very fair point. Um, Robbie, pivoting to you for a minute, how do you think about nuclear and its potential role in this energy transition? Yeah, well, I think Emily's point is right. It's pretty clear today, the role of nuclear. I think, you know, to build on your point, the big question is what technology is going to be available? When will it be available? What will it cost, right? If we're talking about getting to an 80% clean grid by 2030, we don't have any of the new nuclear technologies at scale today. We might by 2030, I'm not sure. I, I guess the perennial joke is we're only fi- we're always only five years away <laughs> from small modular reactors. Maybe it's actually true this time. But I think if we're able to get viable technologies for nuclear that can be built without those enormous cost overruns that are more modular, um, especially if they're they're flexible, um, you know, the current nuclear fleet is not very flexible, but some of the new technologies do seem to offer that, you know, they could be really important components of the grid as we decarbonize. I think it really comes down to how quickly will the technology actually materialize and come down the cost curve to be competitive with renewables, because as Emily mentioned, renewables are really cheap and they're only getting cheaper supply chain crises notwithstanding. Um and so the long-term trajectory really means that new, the new nuclear technologies need to get commercialized and come down the cost curve quickly. And so I hope that happens. I hope we're at a point in the near future where we have to say, okay, we have all these different technology options, kind of which one do we want to go down? It reminds me of your your previous comments about like, we want as big a toolkit as possible, and then we can <laughs> choose from there what what does the job. So I hope we get there. Yeah, I completely agree. Right now, I like look at my toolbox and there's just not enough tools to have the specialized one-on-one for the job. Um, But y'all have heard me say that before. I know when I'm looking at new nuclear and especially when I'm looking at like new scale, so this company that designs and markets small reactors in Oregon and like their expectations around what they could achieve with levelized cost of electricity and the build-outs. Robbie, I was laughing at your comment about like how far things are out because what is it, Um, you know, X technology is five years out. It's always like hydrogen's 20 years out and fusion is 30 years out perpetually. But actually, is it is it now that many years out? I had a good discussion at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Rich Power from Clear Path was moderating the discussion. Um, 
And I made the comment, I said, look, you know, when it comes to these small scale reactor designs, I really don't think they are 30 years out anymore. I don't think they're 20 years out. I think that if we actually make the decision to include that tool in our toolbox, they could be ready in the next decade to be actually putting electricity onto the grid. But we got to make that choice, right? If we want to have something on in five, six, seven years, we actually have to make the choice to say we're going to let this tool be in the toolbox and we're actually going to use it, um, which I don't. I don't think we have actually fully committed ourselves to yet, especially when you consider that it's not just about having a reactor design approved, but it's actually having something permitted and built, which takes time and takes a lot of actions from different federal organizations, including the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Agreed. And rational or not, I think nuclear faces particular local, not in my backyard challenges. beyond even the amount that all infrastructure projects face these days. Um, So nuclear has a particularly challenging policy framework or political framework to to overcome, even though the newer technologies are are much safer and don't have a lot of the concerns with some of the older ones. It's just going to be a it's it's going to be an uphill battle. Well, I think that's a great point to leave it on. Um, So with that, I'll move us into our free electrons. Um, Emily, what have you been reading about here in the last week? What is what is at the top of your tabs list across your browser right now? I was actually looking sort of more broadly at the space for free electrons this week and thinking about Earth Overshoot Day. And that is coming up very soon, I guess. Yeah, it's on... um, July 28th this year. And if you haven't heard of Earth Overshoot Day, it's the day every year at the point when human consumption outstrips the resources that nature can regenerate on Earth. So it went down in the pandemic a little bit and we hit August 1st. Um, We hit July 29th. And this year it's back at July 28th. The earliest it's ever been was 2018, July 25th. Um, I was just looking at this day and thinking, you know, that basically means we have, we get through half the year and we use all the Earth's resources that we can regenerate in that year. And then we basically need to, to get through the rest of the year, we use like another, almost another full earth to get what we need and to live our lives today as we do. So I do think um, it's just an interesting question about consumption and how we think about our consumption overall of everything and how we structurally live our lives. But um, interesting to see just the effect of the pandemic on it and it's starting to work its way back as things have turned back on. I think it's really interesting. It seems to also go back to some of the comments you made when we were discussing the impacts of inflation and how, you know, what, how much more efficient can we be? What can we recycle? The circular economy concept and how important it is. Like, I feel like it's all related. Really interesting. Robbie, what about you? What have you been reading? Well, mine is a little off the energy topic, but I thought I would just talk about the first image from the Webb telescope that was released yesterday and how dang cool that was. Um, for folks who haven't seen it, definitely recommend uh, going to NASA's website and having a look. But the first color image, um, the oldest infrared image of the universe, four and a half billion years old, and just filled with galaxies. And the most mind-blowing thing to me is the way that it was described is basically if you held a grain of sand an arm's length away from your face, that is the part of the sky that this telescope is looking at and just totally filled with with galaxies dating back billions of years. So uh, I guess it's energy related. It's infrared energy that they uh, they looked at with the telescope and colorized. But yeah, just, I don't know, helpful context sometimes for for uh, thinking about all the work we're, we're doing and, and our role in the universe and um, just, just really cool to see that. No, it was really neat. I know... Uh... Former colleague of mine at the University of Texas at Austin, Cheryl Kirschenbaum, who's now gone back to school to get her PhD, and she hosts a TV series talking about like science and food, but she was putting it up and she was thinking about the low percentage of the galaxy that you actually are seeing in this picture and just how much incredible stuff is out there and the questions her kids have been asking her about what they're seeing. And I just, yeah, super inspiring. Really great. I think too, just like, can we talk about what an amazing, they they built that satellite, launched it, and it's taking pictures perfectly. I mean, what an achievement, technological achievement as we're talking about all the technologies of the future. Maybe that gives some hope that we can uh, we can do all these things on scale and on budget. Yeah, pretty cool. It brings me back to my days at Cindy National Labs where we were designing these little micro mirrors to put into telescopes. Um, and just, I mean, I 
worked there for a short period of time. There were scientists who do this with whole careers, but man, they create amazing stuff um, to give us insights into the galaxy. Oh, my free electrons seem so small after that one, Robbie, because it's very much like on Earth. Um, and it's about crypto. So Ed, if you're listening, yes, I'm going to talk about cryptocurrency while you're not here to respond. We had a good discussion about crypto the other day. Um, so as someone who lives and is primarily based in Texas, so I split my time between there and New York, <sighs> these really hot days and all these records were hitting on our grid. Give me pause, especially after some significant blackouts in the early days of COVID um, that we experienced. And there has been this theory and this whole discussion about could, you know, the role of industrial users in demand response and particularly the potential role of cryptocurrency miners and how they can respond to calls to reduce demand in times where the grid is constrained. And so I was reading this article out of Bloomberg that said that cryptocurrency miners were among those that answered the call to conserve energy in ERCOT on Monday. Um, and overall, uh, according to these major mining operations, uh, they allowed one gigawatt of capacity to flow back into the grid. So this is from the Texas Blockchain Council. So I've been trying to dig into more data about this, but it's interesting to say, you know, how, what allowed that to happen? <laughs> and how can we monetize that resource and get more demand response into the system so that we make sure that, you know, when there's a lot of strain on it, we don't end up with a blackout that can hurt people, but we actually scale back on other operations that, you know, it's tough to turn off a clean room, but we can scale back on crypto perhaps. But I thought that was interesting. And again, digging into the data some more, but just the idea that you could actually scale back on crypto enough to free up enough power to power about 200,000, I guess, homes in Texas, rough numbers that is, uh, was pretty interesting to me. The other thing that I mentioned earlier is, uh, you know, being up in Calgary for the past bit here and really engaging with the energy community there. It is fascinating to learn about the interconnections between the U.S. and between each of the provinces and to have um, from my colleagues up there talk about how much easier it's actually at times to connect into the U.S., than into different parts of provinces. And some of that's geographic, but some of that is politics when you're going between provinces. So I've been reading a bunch about the design of the Canadian electrical grid. <laughs> so that's my other my other fun side thing. So crypto and grid design. Um, but with that, we'll leave it there because I think we're out, out of time for today. Um, so just want to say thanks again, Robbie and Emily, for joining us. So Robbie, really appreciated seeing you again. Thanks for all your great comments. Thanks, Melissa. Great to be here. Thanks, Melissa. Great job hosting. Appreciate it. Thanks again for joining us here on The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. As always, let us know what you thought. Let us know about topics that you think we should discuss. And, uh, you know, send us an email, tweet at us, at, at The Energy Gang. You can uh, send a message to Ed so when he's back um, from holiday, he'll see it at, at Ed underscore Crooks or send me a note at, at MCLOTT, MCLOT. And thanks again for joining us today. We'll see you next time. Bye.